Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions about sex and sexually transmitted infections. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, we're talking about herpes. Specifically, does everyone have herpes? It's a bit of a startling statement, but you'd be surprised how often it comes up in sex education videos and lectures. Nearly everyone has it. Nearly 90% of the global population carries some strain of herpes. About 3.7 billion people worldwide are infected with the herpes virus. Yeah, you probably have an STD. Everyone has herpes viruses. You have herpes, and so does everybody else. So many sex educators, at least on YouTube, seem to think that most people on this planet have herpes. I've often thought that this stat just couldn't be true, but somehow I've never actually looked into it. Until now. In this episode, we'll crunch the numbers and try to sort fact from hyperbole. We'll also talk about what herpes is, the stigma associated with sexually transmitted infections, and what you need to know to battle herpes stigma. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first... Before we get into the focus of this week's episode, I wanted to have a little pre-episode chit-chat about chit-chat. After last week's episode that featured special guest star Shelley Collette, I heard from a number of people that you really enjoyed hearing Shelley and I talk back and forth about stuff. And I would like to incorporate more host chit-chat at the beginning of episodes, and we'll definitely feature Shelley again in the future because she's fun to chat with. So on the topic of random host chit-chat, my audio wizard producer, Jeremy Dahl, uh, and I see see these things a bit differently. Jeremy, why don't you tell folks your opinions about chit-chat? About chit-chat and podcasts? Yeah. Um, well, I'm highly intolerant of like front-loaded <laughs> chit-chat on podcasts. <laughs> I'm a little impatient. I like to get to the heart of the matter. Um, I mean, it depends. For the podcast I've listened to for years and I know the personalities, it's like, oh, cool, you know, Mike and Julie are talking to each other, blah, blah, blah. But especially with a new podcast, if there's like half an hour people talking about like the last promotional thing they had, I'm just like, I don't know what anybody's talking about. Whereas I love the host chit-chat at the beginning of podcasts. Sometimes that's my favorite part. Sometimes I will skip the actual episode. Like I just want to hear the catch-up from the hosts and see what they have to say. Um, Sacrilege. (laughs) One of my favorite podcasts for host chit-chat is Turn Me On, which is a podcast about sex based out of Halifax. But there are other ones too that have really great host banter at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I can see you with Turn Me On because... Yeah, I think the first time I listened to that, um, you were I'm totally like, intolerant. You're like, why do these people just uh, yeah, talk so it's much? It's tedious, but the the, <laughs> the podcast is about their relationships. So, yeah, like the kind of that dynamic between the two. This is how you find out stuff about them and their polyamorous lifestyle and all that. So, makes sense. All right, so we're gonna try casual banter and chit chat perhaps in future episodes as well. Uh, But I'd like to hear from you all. I'm going to do a a poll on Instagram at Do We Know Things to see uh, other people's thoughts on banter. Um, I was going to say another podcast I listen to a lot is Call Your Girlfriend. And it's my favorite when they do just them chatting back and forth. I actually like it better than when they do interviews with other people, even when those other people are amazing. 
Um, I just like hearing the two hosts chat to each other. I totally jammed on skip 30 seconds, skip 30 seconds on that one. <laughs> but I just don't know him yet. Yeah, I'm sure that'll change. I like the podcast, though. <laughs> so let us know either via social media at doweknowthings.com or by email, doweknowthings at gmail.com, your thoughts and feelings about pre-episode banter. I feel like we're really selling people on it. (laughs) (laughs) And now let's learn about herpes. One of the most vivid memories I have from my first formal training as a sex educator was learning that 80% of people have herpes. The training was in an old mansion turned office space, and us trainees were all seated in a circle in some sort of living room. We were expectantly facing this instructor with a a flip chart. The instructor wrote in large black print that 80% of people have herpes, and that 90% of those people didn't know they had it. At the time, I remember being shocked by that number and wondering how it could possibly be true. And to be honest, I was also a bit scared because that meant that I probably had herpes. I don't remember any of the discussion that came after or what we actually learned about herpes that day, but the image of that number is burned into my brain. Using clear, simple messages to convey information is communications 101. With complex issues, though, the problem is that often we only remember those simple messages and forget any nuance. So the piece that gets repeated over and over again is that most people have herpes or X percent of people have herpes. So to go back to the number that I learned, do 80% of people have herpes and do 90% of them not know it? This is actually pretty easy to get to the bottom of because the Center for Disease Control in the U.S. does comprehensive studies on things like sexually transmitted infections, also known as STIs, which is what I'll say through most of the rest of the podcast. Before we get to the stats, though, let's talk about what herpes is. When most people think about herpes, they're thinking about genital herpes which usually looks like blisters or sores on and around the penis, vagina, and anus. There are multiple strains of herpes in the herpes viridae family that affect humans, but we are most interested in herpes simplex virus, which is often abbreviated as HSV. Herpes simplex virus consists of two strains called HSV1 and HSV2. Historically, HSV1 is found mostly above the waist, um, usually around the mouth in the form of cold sores, and HSV2 is mostly in the genital region. More recently, though, there's been increasing evidence that HSV1 infections are presenting themselves on both the mouth or other parts of the upper body as well as the genitals. Usually how it works is that the site of the original infection is where the sores will return upon subsequent outbreaks. HSV enters most easily through mucosal membranes, such as the mouth, rectum, or genitals, but it can also enter through the skin. It's often contracted through contact with active sores, but it can also be shared during phases called asymptomatic shedding. Most of the time, the virus is hiding out in the nerves and isn't contagious, but the asymptomatic shedding is when the virus is active and can be spread, but there are no symptoms. And this is estimated to happen 10 to 20% of the time. Some people who have genital herpes don't have symptoms at all, or at least don't notice them. For those who do have symptoms, there's usually an initial outbreak within the first month after infection. Then the virus goes dormant and hides out in specific nerves until it's reactivated. 
Reactivation can occur for a number of reasons. Some common triggers would be when the immune system is compromised, for example, when fighting something like a cold, uh, or it could be when someone's experiencing stress in their life. The symptoms of an initial outbreak of genital herpes are generally more severe than cold sores, but both can include flu-like symptoms and burning or itching at the site of the sores. Reactivations of the virus tend to be less intense, but can still be accompanied by flu-like symptoms and pain. So when we talk about HSV, we mostly talk about it in terms of cold sores and genital herpes, but it can actually occur on any part of your body. You can also spread it from one part of your body to another if you touch a sore and then touch another part of your body. Uh, Common locations other than the mouth and genitals include eyes and fingers. Herpes on your fingers is called herpetic whitlow. A new thing I learned while researching this podcast is that wrestlers and other contact sport players can also get herpes on various parts of their body from being in close contact with and rubbing on one another. Because it's so common for wrestlers, this form is called herpes gladiatorum. It's just HSV-1, usually on the torso or arms, but it has this extra exciting name, I guess, to distinguish it from less cool forms of herpes, maybe? Okay, so now you know about the two kinds of herpes, let's get on to the stats. The first thing I'll tell you is that all of those large numbers that are used when estimating the amount of people have herpes include HSV-1 and HSV-2. HSV-1, the cold sore kind of herpes, is way more common. In the U.S., the most comprehensive data on HSV is collected by the Center for Disease Control. Their most recent data is from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey from 2015-2016. This survey involves conducting interviews and physical examinations of approximately 5,000 people per year that are representative of the non-institutionalized U.S. population. Different components of the survey and exam are used in different years, so HSV is only assessed occasionally. In the 2015-2016 data, the CDC found that 48% of their sample tested positive for HSV-1 and 12% tested positive for HSV-2. So in total, in this most recent sample, 60% of people tested positive for HSV. The numbers for both HSV-1 and HSV-2 were down in this recent sample compared to the last sample that was done in the year 2000. In Canada, there are almost no national data on HSV. The one recent national study that looked at a large representative sample and had people complete surveys, swabs, and blood tests was the 2009 to 2011 Canadian Health Measures Survey. This study included over 3,000 people, but did not include people living on reserve land or in institutions. This study only tested for HSV-2, the genital kind, and the results showed that 13% of people aged 14 to 59 tested positive for HSV-2. Of the people who were told that they tested positive for HSV-2, 94% did not know they had it. Finally, a global study commissioned by the World Health Organization reviewed 111 studies from many countries to estimate a global incidence of HSV-2. The statistical model they came up with estimated that the global incidence would be about 11% for HSV-2. So it's very clear from these studies then that if we are talking about HSV-2, which is mostly genital herpes, the numbers are much lower than, quote, everyone. Uh, And they're lower than the first estimate I heard, which was 80%. However, with HSV-1 genital infections increasing, particularly among young people, the overall percentage of 
of people with genital herpes might be higher than just the HSV2 estimate of 11%. An estimate from another review of global data commissioned by the World Health Organization used the estimate that as many as 50% of HSV1 infections in young people might be genital. It was just an estimate, but using that estimate, the total percentage of people with genital herpes that they came up with in their statistical model was 26% in the Americas. However, a study using actual data, so swabs from cervixes from a large U.S. sample, found that even looking at both HSV-1 and 2 infections in the genitals, the total for both together was about 15%. If we look at both HSV-1 and 2 anywhere in the body, then the numbers are above 50%, perhaps as high as 80%. So this is probably what people mean when they say everyone has herpes. Lots of people have cold sores on their mouths or HSV-1 on other parts of their body, including the genitals. Genital herpes are pretty common as far as STIs go, but on average, it's still below 15% in most places, um, although it could be as high as 26% in the Americas, according to the World Health Organization, but that's still not everyone. So if most people think of genital herpes when they say everyone has herpes, but so few people do have genital herpes, why does this keep getting passed on? My best guess for this is that by arguing everyone has this, we can reduce stigma because we're putting most people in the have herpes camp. In theory, if we believe that we likely have herpes and most people we know have herpes, then we're less likely to discriminate against those who do know that they have herpes and who show symptoms. But it doesn't seem to work this way, unfortunately. Back to me and my training. After my initial fear reaction, when realizing the rates of herpes infections were so high, I spent a lot of time learning more about herpes. I realized how not a big deal herpes was, and also realized that my fear of it was really stigmatizing. I actually became very passionate about battling herpes stigma. It just felt so unjust that this thing that was just not a big deal was so feared. Yes, herpes is for life, but mostly it doesn't do anything. It just shows up once in a while to extra stress you out when you're already feeling stressed. Because of sex negativity, stigma around sexually transmitted infections is very high. This has been documented in many studies. For example, people have much harsher judgments of people with STIs compared to people with cancer because they feel that people with STIs made the choice to have sex in ways that put them at risk. People believe this without knowing anything about the ways in which a person contacted, contracted the STI. I want to tell you about one series of studies that I found particularly interesting for the way they assess people's judgments of risk and harm around STIs. So it was a series of a few studies. I'll tell you just about two. The first study gave people one of two scenarios, and I'll paraphrase them here. The first scenario asked participants to assume that a thousand people had unprotected sex yesterday. The second scenario said, assume a thousand people drove from Detroit to Chicago yesterday. You can see the full text of what they actually said on the website at doweknowthings.com. So people get one of two scenarios, and then they're asked to estimate how many people they expected to die, either from HIV from that one sexual encounter, or from a car accident from that 300-mile drive. People estimated that 72 of those 1,000 people would die from HIV from having unprotected sex one time, and that 4 of the 1,000 people would die in a car accident. 
the actual risk of both of those things is much, much lower. But these research participants based in the U.S. estimated that unprotected sex would be 17 times more likely to result in death than driving a car. But it's not just the sex that bothers people. It's specifically something about STIs. Another one in this set of studies had research participants read paragraphs that involved someone infecting somebody else with either chlamydia or H1N1, which is the swine flu, by having sex with them. Participants read paragraphs where someone is having minor symptoms that they either think is a UTI or urinary tract infection, if the paragraph is about chlamydia, or allergies if the paragraph is about swine flu. So the person has some inkling that there's something wrong, and then they go to a party and they have sex with someone. The outcomes are either mild, so the person they have sex with gets chlamydia or the swine flu and has to take medication and gets better, or the outcomes could be moderate, so the person they have sex with gets chlamydia or swine flu and it's so bad they have to be hospitalized, but then they take medication and get better. And then for the swine flu, there's an additional condition where the person who gets the flu dies. This is a possibility with swine flu, but not with chlamydia, so there was no equally severe comparison that could be made. Participants read one of these paragraphs, then they ranked the people infecting other people on how risky their behavior was, how selfish they were, and how smart they were. The rankings showed that people who read the paragraph about the mild chlamydia outcome ranked that person as taking more risks, being more selfish, and being more stupid than the person who infected someone with swine flu that resulted in death. So in this study, giving someone chlamydia was seen by participants as worse than causing someone's death via swine flu. There is just so, so, so much stigma about STIs. And this stigma is part of the reason why we often know so little about STIs. Herpes is particularly stigmatizing because it's something we have for life, as opposed to chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis that can be treated if people get tested and know that they have them. We also have way more stigma about genital herpes than oral herpes. Yes, oral herpes can be embarrassing when they're on your face, but it's nowhere near the level of stigma compared to genital herpes. So it makes sense that we would want to emphasize that many people have herpes because it can work towards reducing stigma. But it's also important to convey accurate and clear information so that we aren't creating confusion. So what do you actually need to know about herpes? Genital herpes are mostly contagious when there are sores present or immediately before an outbreak. Most people who have outbreaks can sense them coming through tingling in the skin or flu-like symptoms. As I mentioned, though, there's also asymptomatic shedding, which happens sporadically, and the virus can be transmitted at those times without any, any indication that it's happening. Herpes can be managed through lifestyle choices, for example, taking care of yourself, eating well, having low stress, uh, and also through antiviral medications to reduce symptoms and outbreaks. Genital herpes can be transmitted even if you're using barriers. So anywhere that's had a sore before is somewhere that can potentially spread the virus when it's active. External condoms only cover the penis, but other parts of the skin and mucosal membranes can still come in contact. Internal condoms, previously known as female condoms, cover more territory, but they still don't cover everything. Latex dams offer the most coverage, but are usually only used for oral sex on vulvas or anuses, so aren't helpful during penetration. I tell you all of this not to freak you out, but just to make you aware. As I've said, I don't think herpes is that big of a deal. 
The worst part often is anxiety and shame because of stigma and rejection by partners because of stigma. There can be some more severe complications with herpes, although they are rare. One major issue is when someone with herpes is going to give birth. The care providers need to be aware of the herpes diagnosis and the person should go on medication to help reduce the risk of having an outbreak during birth. It can be quite dangerous for an infant to contract herpes during birth. Another thing people don't seem to know about herpes is that routine STI testing does not test for HSV. So if you've had STI tests with swabs or urine and blood testing, it probably did not include herpes testing. The main way that people are tested in Canada is through swabs of active sores. So this is when you're having an outbreak, you go to a doctor and they swab to to test the sore itself. There are blood tests available, but the primary one that's done only assesses HSV. It doesn't tell you if it's HSV 1 or 2. There are a few labs in the country that will test for what strain of HSV you might have, but it's expensive. Also, we know that HSV 1 is becoming more common on the genitals anyway, so it's confusing. In the age of social media, there are a lot of people open about their herpes diagnoses that can provide information about their experiences with herpes, and this is done on Instagram, YouTube, etc. Being open and transparent about genital herpes reduces shame and stigma. Social media accounts and channels are a great venue for people with herpes to be in charge of their own stories instead of in the past where most herpes knowledge came from pictures of lesions in sex ed class. Okay, so I started this episode with two numbers on a flip chart. 80% of people have herpes, and 90% of people didn't know they had it. Bold numbers. But as I found out after looking into the stats, they were talking about both kinds of herpes, the cold sore kind and the genital herpes kind. And when you say the word herpes, your mind normally goes right to the genital kind. Of course, with the spread of HSV-1 to the genitals more recently— We really don't know the location of infection unless the person has seen sores. And the data do show that most people who have HSV-2, at least, don't know that they have it. And that could be because they're not having outbreaks. It's safe to say, though, that only a small portion of the world has genital herpes. And even though we don't all have it, we can still challenge herpes stigma through other means. We can start by being just less freaked out by herpes— By destigmatizing this STI, we can all live happier lives, those of us with and without it. That's all for this episode's Tour to Herpes. I hope you learned something and are a bit less afraid of herpes and STIs in general. Are you a herpes expert, a person with herpes, or do you just know things? Feel free to send peer review comments about this episode, either by writing an email or sending a voice memo from your phone to doweknowthings at gmail.com. Next time on Do We Know Things, I will dig into research around antidepressants and sexual function. Depression can make us desire sex less, and antidepressants are supposed to fix that, but most of them have not great sexual side effects. What are those side effects, and how common are they? Will treating depression via medication give you your libido back? Next time on Do We Know Things. You can find a script for this episode with references and some extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can contact me at doweknowthings at gmail.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings. Thanks to Alex McKay and Jocelyn Wentland at the Sex Information and Education Council of Canada, also known as CCAN, for pointing me in the right direction with my research. 
You can find more about CCAN and find all of their great sexual health resources at their website, CCAN.org. That's S-I-E-C-C-A-N.org. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance for this episode by Matt Tunnicliffe. I would love if you could rate and review Do We Know Things on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Do We Know Things. <laughs>